I'm Dave Lawler, the world editor at Axios. In this season of How It Happened, my colleagues and I have been documenting Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. In this episode, we examine how Russians are responding to it. As the war drags on into its second month, Russia's war casualties are mounting. Allegations of war crimes are emerging from areas occupied by Russian forces. Sanctions and inflation are punishing everyday Russians. But most Russian people are not responding to that external pressure in the way many in the West anticipated. In fact, opinion polls suggest that Russians are rallying around this war effort and their president. For this episode, recorded six weeks into the invasion, I set out to understand why. You'll hear from Russia's top independent pollster, a leading Russian sociologist who studies democracy, and a journalist inside Russia whose life has already changed. Their insights will help explain how Russians are absorbing the impacts of this war and the horrors of this conflict. You'll also hear from a top opposition politician about the resistance to Putin. You won't hear from the Russian government. We did ask repeatedly for an interview, but didn't hear back. From Axios, this is how it happened. Putin's invasion part four, the view from Russia. Before this war began, middle-class Russians could buy a plane ticket to Europe, work at and buy from the biggest Western companies, get their news from independent media outlets and post as they pleased on social media. Those horizons are now closing. The U.S. and its allies have announced hundreds of sanctions to punish Putin and his inner circle for launching this invasion, and also to turn his people against him as they suffer economically. That hasn't happened, at least not yet. In early April, Russians were faced with allegations that war crimes were being committed in their name in a neighboring country where many of them have relatives. This seemed like it might be a turning point in the conflict. On April 2nd, as Russian forces abandoned the town of Bucha outside of Kyiv, which they had occupied for around a month, news reports began to circulate of unimaginable brutality. We're going to play some of that coverage now, and I want to warn you, it's graphic and disturbing. Now we're going to take you to Ukraine, where shocking new images from a town near Kyiv have led the Ukrainian president to accuse Russia of genocide. Ukrainian national police showed us this mass grave in Bucha. The streets are littered with bodies in civilian clothing. Some appearing to have been tortured, broken limbs. Civilians look to have been executed in the streets. This man, hands bound behind his back. The images coming out of Bucha shocked the world. On April 6th, Biden announced a new round of sanctions in response to those allegations. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic costs and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. EU chief Ursula von der Leyen visited Bucha, telling the world... The unthinkable has happened here. We have seen the cruel face of Putin's army. 
Our series editor, Alison Snyder, spoke with a journalist on the ground in Moscow named Yana, who requested that we not mention her last name or the outlet she's worked for. My name is Yana. I'm uh, a journalist from Moscow. She explained that many Russians continue to access social media, and she saw the images of Bucha there. What happened in Bucha, um, it was huge on social media, and I was so heartbroken um, seeing these pictures on Instagram, on Facebook, and all my uh, feed there was full of these images, and they were horrible. The Russian government has denied any responsibility for the massacre, cynically claiming that the Ukrainians themselves carried it out. And many Russians believe them. There were already uh, the official statements of Ministry of Defense that it was just staged by Ukraine, and that's what Ukrainians did to, like, to show West for their own benefit. Western outlets monitored the Kremlin's response and the way the Russian press handled the allegations. The Russian defense ministry denies killing civilians and claims images of dead civilians are, quote, fake. Russia saying this has been staged, calling the images another hoax from Ukraine and the West. The headline in the army paper, Krasny Zvizda, on Bucha, the liars attack again. People who watch TV, they believe it. They just repeat that there are Nazis in Ukraine, that leaders of Ukraine are drug addicts. Everything they hear from TV anchors, that's what they repeat. To understand how a society can absorb these kind of horrors, deny culpability, and rally around their leader, I turn to Greg Yudin, a prominent sociologist who studies public opinion in Russia. I'm Greg Yudin. I'm a professor of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences, mainly in the field of theory of democracy, and I'm focused on public opinion polling. Yudin has been open about his politics. He's pro-democracy, and he's protested this war. But he's also done extensive research to understand Russians who support Putin, or at least say they do. They're willing to protect their everyday lives. Now, in order to do that, you just need some storyline that tells you how things are fine. And basically, the government provides them with this storyline. So they're willing to support it just because it helps them to survive. I mean, it reconciles them with this reality. Yudin doesn't think that the West's dream of Russians suddenly snapping out of this and turning on Putin will happen. He expects exactly the opposite. The more atrocities we see there, the more difficult it becomes to change your... uh, I mean, with all those atrocities, it's even more uh, traumatic to think, well, uh, probably Russian troops were doing that. But because if Russian troops were doing that, like, what am I supposed to do? Probably I'm supposed to kill myself or what? I mean, protesting against Putin doesn't make any sense uh, anyway. So what am I supposed to do? And I think we're going to see uh, things that are even worse than Bucha. And unfortunately, they are likely to reinforce even further this willingness not to admit. Because otherwise, it's just, it's impossible to live with. Yudin's grim prediction is already coming true. On April 7th, the day after we spoke, similar horrific reports of mass graves and alleged torture emerged from the town of Brodyanka, Ukraine. In early April, a poll from the Levada Center, Russia's most respected independent polling firm, 
caught my eye. As of March 30th, Putin's approval rating was up to 83%, and support for the war was at 81%. To be clear, that was before the news from Bucha broke. But Putin's ratings had been on the rise throughout the conflict. I spoke with the center's director, Denis Volkov, over Zoom from Moscow. Hi, I'm uh, Denis Volkov, director of the Levada Center in Moscow. We study public opinion in Russia and try to share our results with the public on our website and through the publications in the media, though not, not many independent media left inside Russia. Volkov's polls show Putin's approval rating jumping 20 points from an already high 63% in November. I asked how that could be possible. I think the main reason why the ratings are going up, it is because all the situation is understood within the framework of conflict between Russia and the West. So for a majority, it's not about Ukraine, it's more about Russia and the West fighting inside Ukraine. Volkov told me that what you can learn from public opinion polling in Russia is limited. For many Russians, expressing opposition to Putin, even to a pollster, could feel like a risk. Of course, surveys do not allow you to know what people really think, but only what people are ready to share with others. So it's more about uh, to understand how people are behaving in public. Like people explain to us that it would be not patriotic not to support the government, support Putin, in spite of all the other problems that there are inside uh, the country. Some people mention the struggles they're experiencing, and yet they still justify their approval of Putin and of the conflict. A woman from southern region, for example, was explaining that, well, there are a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. I don't support everything what uh, the government is doing. Uh, but uh, it is right to support Putin now because uh, he is withstanding the pressure from uh, well, outside. Some of these problems, of course, are economic. Yana, the journalist in Moscow, has lost work due to the Kremlin's recent crackdown on independent journalism. She told us about daily life in Russia and how she's heard Russians discuss it. Prices went up because rubble devalued and, yeah, groceries started to cost uh, more. I know that people are struggling uh, with finding some life-saving medicines, um, for example, for cancer treatment. Yana has seen how things are playing out in Moscow. You would pay for something uh, in the shop and Apple Pay would not work. And the cashier would tell you, oh, what this West is doing to us. She also traveled outside the city. There, it is like nothing happened and people are so separated from all this. And they would just discuss only prices and they do not connect these to the events. They would be just in the shop. Oh, let's buy this tea unless it got more expensive. I have this feeling that there are indeed more people who support this rather than don't support this. And my own opinion that probably people felt the effect of sanctions and they were just reassured that Western countries wish the worst for Russia and they're trying to get rid of Russia that made people um, feel 
that they need to oppose West. After the break, we'll dig deeper into what support for Putin really looks like in Russia and whether objections to Putin's invasion could generate momentum for his opponents. Welcome back. In my conversations with both Volkov, the pollster, and Yudin, the sociologist, they made a point to distinguish between hardcore Putin supporters and others that they called conditional supporters or passive supporters. That distinction matters when you start to contemplate what this war means for Putin and for the future of Russia. Volkov's polling suggests about half the population fully trusts the government and supports Putin pretty much unconditionally while another third supports him, but with reservations. Here's Yudin on this idea. Passive support basically means that people want to protect their everyday lives. They don't believe in any kind of change. No matter whether they protest or agree, it won't change anything. This is where state media plays a significant role in the conflict. Yudin doesn't think it's that Russian people are simply brainwashed. He thinks on some level they're making a choice to believe what they hear. Deep inside, of course, the vast majority of Russians understand what is going on. They understand it, trust me, they understand, and they know. But admitting it is a different thing, and it kind of makes your world collapse completely. Yudin argues that years of authoritarian rule have dissuaded Russians from even contemplating a reality in which Russia doesn't go along with Putin's will. Russians are taught that there is no way to change anything. Least of all, you can change Putin's behavior. Probably, if you're lucky enough, you can storm the heavens and take God from there. But changing Putin's behavior, it is not possible at all. At the start of this conflict, many in the West were hoping that the horrors unfolding in Ukraine and the sanctions at home might break Putin's hold on his country. Videos suggesting this sort of thing have gone viral. Here's that one from Arnold Schwarzenegger that you may have heard. My dear Russian friends and the Russian soldiers serving in Ukraine, I'm speaking to you today because there are things that are going on in the world that are being kept from you. But the truth is far more complicated. The Kremlin has tried to shut down access to independent media and social media and has implemented new laws, including a maximum 15-year prison term for using the words war or invasion to describe the war and invasion. But many Russians can access international media and social media. Yana, the journalist from Moscow, explained how this actually works in Russia. Russian authorities blocked access to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but people use VPN as well. A VPN, or virtual private network, lets you get around government censorship. They've been really widely used in Russia. The thing is that Russian government also blocks different VPN tools. Many people use free VPNs, and there are less and less free VPNs available. And if you need to use VPN that is not free, you will need to pay for this. But you can pay for this only with MasterCard or Visa card. In addition to the official sanctions from countries, many private companies levied their own unofficial sanctions. Mega brands like McDonald's, Coke, and Ikea pulled out of Russia. MasterCard and Visa stopped supporting their Russian customer base. In the case of VPNs, that particular step seems to have actually made it harder for Russians to access global media. 
What the Kremlin has had to do to offset the economic toll of sanctions will be enough to start riots in some countries. The central bank has raised interest rates to 20%, limited withdrawals from savings held in foreign currencies, and essentially required Russian companies to exchange their dollars for rubles. This is all helping to stabilize the ruble. Here's Yana on what that means on the ground. Right now, some things are not cost as much as they cost before, but still groceries um, cost a lot. But these actions won't stave off a massive economic contraction forever. Even if Russia is able to continue exporting oil and gas, its economy is projected to contract by as much as 15% in the next year, according to the Institute of International Finance. The White House predicts that Russians will soon have Soviet-level living standards. I asked Yudin, the sociologist, about these sanctions and the Western hope that they might turn Russians against Putin, even if the horrors of the conflict couldn't. If someone expects those sanctions to to make Russians reconsider their costs and benefits, uh, that's a mistake. Yana pointed out that there's a generational component to that idea. The older generation remembers an even harder economic era, not so long ago. My mom remembers the time her friend was saving money to buy apartment, and her friend had already this amount to buy the whole apartment. And the next day, this money turned into nothing. It was in 90s, and on this money, she could afford only two bags of sugar. And so people who remember this, they think that that's not a big deal, what is happening right now, probably. She mentioned that in her circle of younger, more liberal Russians, the response from many has been to flee. Young Russians who used to get their news online and who do not support what is happening, they feel that they already have less and less rights each year in Russia. People started to flee, and I stayed because I'm, I'm afraid to leave my family in this situation and to be separated from them. My best friend left. Many people who never thought of immigration, they chose immigration. But what about the Russians who are inclined to stay and protest the war and the Kremlin's domestic move since it began? At the beginning of the conflict, there was a substantial protest movement that took to the streets. Here's what that sounded like from the BBC. The data Yudin's looking at suggests 20 to 25 percent of Russians oppose the war, even if the number of protesters is much smaller. For those Russians who oppose the war, what is going now is a complete tragedy, it's a national tragedy. Not simply because Russian troops are participating in doing terrible things to our closest neighbor, but also because it destroys the future of the country. It is a tragedy. And therefore, uh, these people are, trust me, they're willing to risk their lives. They would definitely give their lives if only there was any way to stop it. If those who are out on the streets, they're desperate. Because for, for them, it is exactly impossible to live with. The Kremlin cracked down on protesters right away sometimes arresting people while they were literally mid-interview with Western outlets. And as a result, the protest movement has visibly dropped off. Yana said there were two weeks without any protests. And when the most recent protests happened, she didn't even hear about it until afterwards. She thinks the communication around the protests has been sharply curtailed. There is one figure in Russia who has repeatedly brought tens of thousands of protesters into the streets in the past, 
and become easily Putin's most formidable political opponent. That's Alexei Navalny. But while this was all happening, Navalny was standing trial in a prison colony on trumped-up fraud charges. Navalny's scorching criticism of Putin and the war, passed through his lawyers and onto social media, has been going viral internationally. But when I dug into Levada's polling data, I saw that support for his party was flat at around 5%, poll after poll. Yudin told me that Putin has very effectively undermined all alternative political movements. He doesn't even allow his own supporters to organize political demonstrations. When it comes to Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation, the crackdown began well before the invasion. Our organization, which always advocated peaceful protests and uh, civil work, anti-corruption investigations, media work, etc. So we were deemed extremist. So we were put on the same level as Taliban, let's say. And uh, it became not safe for our staff to remain in Russia. That's Vladimir Ashurkov, who runs the foundation and is one of Navalny's closest aides. I spoke to Ashurkov on Zoom. He was in a car, so you might hear some street noise in the background. But he's in exile in London, and he told me his life is in danger even there. But inside Russia, activism is becoming almost impossible. Any dissident, any independent voice in Russia is unfortunately in great danger. It's like a minefield. But out of everyone I spoke to, he was the most optimistic about the future of his country. People don't join Russian opposition because they expect that we will win quickly. Our strategy has for years been the same. We understand that in the oppressive regime like Putin's, democratic forces like us, we're not strong enough to take the regime heads on. But what we can do is to increase the number of supporters, to spread out our message, to build a powerful political organization so that when a, the regime enters a crisis, which inevitably it will, we will be the most organized political force that will have a seat at the table where the issue of how Russia is governed at the next stage of its development will be decided. In The regime gets more and more fragile. I think that within five years, tops will see a real change of the political construction in Russia. For the time being, many Russians support their president and his invasion. But the experts we spoke to think the country's also being traumatized by the war. And as Putin presses on, the economic costs for ordinary Russians will deepen. While Putin's control of the narrative around the war appears secure within Russia, his military position in Ukraine is more precarious. And while the Russian political opposition has been beaten back, they're waiting for their chance. And so, for now, Russia's links to the West are being severed, and Putin's rule is growing more absolute. But it's far too early to know how this war ends. For Ukraine, for the Russian people, or for Vladimir Putin. I'm Dave Lawler. Thank you for listening. This episode of How It Happened, Putin's Invasion, was reported by Allison Snyder, Naomi Shaven, and me. 
It was produced by Naomi Shaven. Allison Snyder is our series editor. Sarah Keholani-Gu is our editor-in-chief. Music supervision by Alex Sugiura. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Ben O'Brien. Original music by Michael Honf. Special thanks to Sarah Fisher and Emily Peck, to our Axios Today colleagues, and to Axios co-founders Jim Vandehei, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz. I also want to thank our colleagues outside of the newsroom who worked with us to make this season possible, especially Lucia Orejarena and Chen Gao. I'm Dave Lawler. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.